friends, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, April 7th, and it's good to be back in the groove of the spring 2015 season. I'm here as always with our multi-talented Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How you doing, Brett? Oh God, I'm good. Everything working? <laughs> I think everything's working. Sounds good. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're over at our new um, uh, system at Integral Life called Integral Radio. And last week was a little bit of a technical snafu, but Brett is just sure that he got everything worked out. He was here till 10 o'clock last night, <laughs> and he left with a big smile on his face and said, I had five problems and I got them all solved. So sounds good, right? Yeah, I think so. Corey just said we should uh, give your mic a boost a little bit, so I'm going to do that. All right. Well, again, everybody, welcome and, and thanks for joining us. Uh, for those of you who are into integral theory and would like to follow along in maybe a little more serious way, theoretically at least, I would encourage you to check out the charts that we have published on dailyevolver.com under the theory tab at the top of the homepage, and particularly the altitudes of development chart. I refer to, you know, altitudes of cultural development and also individual developments, such as traditionalism, modernism, postmodernism, integral, and so forth. And this helps you place it a little bit. Uh, I would also say that on our new integral radio system, you'll see that on the homepage, there's a, a chat function and you are uh, encouraged to, you know, offer any questions or comments. Brett will be uh, monitoring that and, and send me anything that he thinks I ought to see and you can chat with each other and it's a nice feature of this system. You can also send me questions or comments by email at jeff at dailyevolver.com or you can send me voicemails with this cool speak pipe system that we have on the website dailyevolver.com where you press the orange button and you can leave me a voice message. I sometimes play them on the air and I can send you voice messages back, and it's a nice way to communicate. Uh, along those lines, I got a really cool poem from a listener about three or four hours ago, Kathleen Schultz from Detroit, Michigan. She's obviously a listener, and she hears me talk a lot about you know how I deal with my dogs in an enlightened way and my plants and and you know, I've been talking about my dog. You know, my, my big insight through my dogs is that animals are people too. And last week I talked about how I love you know working with my tulips in my garden and bringing them in, and and that I realized that not only do I love them, but I have a sneaking suspicion that they love me too, and that plants are people too. And so she sent me this poem called "It's So Perfect." It's called "The Blessing of the Old Woman." The Tulip and the Dog, and it's a poem by Alicia Suskin O. Stryker from her book, The Book of Seventy. In a short, this is it, she says, To be blessed, said the old woman, is to live and work so hard, God's love washes right through you like milk through a cow. To be blessed, said the dark red tulip, is to knock their eyes out with a slug of lust implied by your upended skirt. To be blessed, said the dog, is to have a pinch of God inside you, and all the other dogs can smell it. <laughs> so thank you, 
Kathleen, for that poem. I, I really love it. All right. The main topic I want to talk about tonight and look at is the nuclear negotiations uh, going on between Iran and what we call the P5 plus one, which is a group of uh, basically the Security Council of the United Nations, that is United States, Russia, China, France, United Kingdom, and Germany, plus the European Union, uh, negotiating together with Iran on their nuclear program. I'm sure you've heard about it. And we'll take an integral lens to the process and see if we can have any, um, you know, deeper understanding. But before I do, I want to give another report from the Petri dish, or Petri dish, I'm not sure. But at any rate, from, you know, me, from my own, you know, integral practice, uh, and it's really one of the great things about being an integral practitioner is that you become aware of that you're not only living your life, but that you are being lived, that there's an updraft of emergence that is at the core of the cosmos and also at the core of your being. Uh, and, you know, we can call she, he, or it by many names, but tonight we'll just call it the procreant urge or eros. And part of what we're doing as integral practitioners is that we are seeing that we are evolving in both our individual consciousness, we're evolving in terms of our um, thoughts and our subtle bodies, our energetic bodies, and we're evolving in terms of our physical bodies. So we work on all three, and, and part of the work I'm doing is, you know, I'm trying to do I'm trying to do my part here, is, you know, to take care of my physical body. I'm about to turn 61 years old. And, you know, I get a B minus overall, I got to say. But one of the reasons I don't get a C minus is because I do pretty much faithfully work out three mornings a week at the gym. And part of my training at the gym is finding and marshalling the will to get out of bed and go do it in the first place. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather lay in bed for another hour than do push-ups. <laughs> so I, I really do notice that, you know, part of this, you know, what looks like a physical training process is also a training in my subtle body, in terms of my mind and my mental will. And I notice that the older I get, the harder it gets on both counts, both physically and mentally which is why I'm happy to report on a neat little secret that I happened upon, which I think is a result of my integral practice. So here's the picture. It's seven in the morning, I'm at the gym, I'm riding the bike or I'm doing push-ups or pumping iron in one of those weight contraptions and I don't wanna be here. And I wanna go easy and check my phone and here I am, um, five push-ups into a set of hopefully 20, and I'm already feeling weak. My mind's racing. It hurts. I hate this. I wish I had eaten more. Maybe I wouldn't feel so weak, or maybe I ate too much, or maybe I wish I'd slept better or longer. Is this hurting my shoulder? I have this whole thing going on. I, I close my eyes, and as I do, I see every pain point in my body, in throbbing technicolor. And, 
you know, I'm very busy with this whole mental thing. And the more it goes on, the weaker I become. And sometimes I, I just, I stop. I can't go any further. I'm, I'm a failure at what I'm doing. But I have to say that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, somewhere along the line, a certain grace descends. And again, this is, I think, a result of my integral project because I drop the whole, I don't want to be doing this thing. I drop that whole project, if you will. I drop the whole project of I, period. And when I do, the whole situation is transformed. And here's what actually happens. So when I close my eyes now, I'm in the middle of my set. I find myself in a tribal village. And it's my village. And none of this arises in great visual detail, but it doesn't have to. Because I'm enough aware in, in this scene that I'm one of the men of the village. And together, we are pumping water for everyone. And every man has to take his turn and do his best. And I notice there are people around me who are counting on us, especially there's children who are thirsty and expectant. And there I am lifting, pulling, pushing, because I have to, for the village to thrive. And it's astonishing when I make that shift in terms of what's going on in my, what we would call the subtle body, the, the body of the mind, that there's a dramatic difference in the power that I find in my physical body. Where I was struggling to do maybe one or two more reps, I now that I can, I find that I can do five or six or 10 more uh, and really tap into a whole new sense of calm strength. And if we look at this from an integral perspective, we can see that what I've done is I've moved from a first-person perspective into a second-person perspective. As I said, it's no longer me. I feel what we in integral call the self-contraction, the sense of self. We call it the self-contraction. I feel it relax. I'm no longer so solidly me. I, I realize how much effort it takes to stay clenched in that self-contraction. And when the energy flows out of the self into this bigger scene where there are other people, where I'm part of a community, where there's a greater purpose, it's just a whole new process. I'm no longer doing this mentally and physically painful thing called doing my exercises. I'm doing my duty. For the children. I'm doing my part to provide for the welfare of my people. I remember a few years ago when I was doing research on happiness, there's a lot of research on you know, positive psychology, what makes people functional and happy. And I don't remember all of what makes people happy, but I do remember the number one behavior that is associated with unhappiness. And that is, and I love this, the number one behavior that is associated with unhappiness is self-focused rumination. When our attention is focused on our own comfort, our own state, our own agenda. 
That is the definition of misery right there. And that's not, you know, those times when we're in a flow state and we're creative and we're working on something and maybe we're all alone and we're painting a picture. That's different. We're merged with, in a sense, a third person in this case. But anything that snaps us out of that hard contraction, first person contraction, in my case, into relationship with this village, with other people, liberates us into a more powerful and loving space. Now, I don't know about the ontological reality of this place I go to. Uh, you know, for sure, it's a visualization. It's a skillful visualization. But I'm not so sure that it doesn't also tap into, you know, the real magenta and red strata, the real tribal warrior strata that is still online in me, in all of us in our developmental stack, as we say, which is laid out in that altitudes or levels of development chart that I described earlier. And remember, as this is just one of the functions of evolution, as we transcend one stage to the other, we don't leave the previous stage. We include it in a healthy way. We include its healthiest aspects and lose its self-contraction as we integrate into ever higher stages of, um, you know, liberation. They don't call it liberation for nothing. I've been delighted to sort of stumble into this, and um, I thought I'd share it with you. So that's my report from the Petri dish. And I'd love to hear yours. I um, get very cool emails and, and voicemails from people who are working on this stuff as well. All right, everything still under control, Brett? Yeah, everything's good. Cool. All right, then. Well, let's look then at this Iran deal. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, the deal's not done. They have till the end of June to actually finalize it. But the main parameters have been laid out. What do we make of it? Well, first of all, as I, I said earlier, it's a result of the, this group called the P5 plus one group, which is the U.S., Great Britain, France, Germany, Russia, China, all of the nuclear powers, by the way, that in the non-proliferation treaty of 1970, these are the known nuclear powers. And the idea of the non-proliferation treaty was to um, keep it at that. Now, since then, we have had four more nuclear powers join the scene, um, two arch enemies, Pakistan and India, and then North Korea, and also Israel. Uh, even though Israel doesn't acknowledge it, it's a, you know a, a, an open secret that they too have a nuclear program. And it's a significant de facto example of world-centric governance that this is happening. You know, at Integral, we talk about how governments and structures of governments evolve from, you know, the clan to the tribe to the empire to the nation state to now nations. And that, you know, the next logical uh, stage of the game is some sort of world government. And we have Integral philosophers talking about a world federation and how it would look. And I think one of the sort of misconceptions about how that comes into the world is that, you know, all of a sudden the world gets together and votes this in or something. But actually it happens incrementally and it's happening. 
uh, through, you know, alliances, treaties, um, economic agreements, um, sanctions, and that we have this group of, first of all, the United States and Russia, which are very much at odds. Uh, and actually, Russia and Iran are our formal allies. China is a big trade partner of Iran, and they're in on the sanction, as, as is Iran. And that is, you know, something that we want to pause and notice, because that is a very, very potent, as I said, de facto example of world-centric governance as it comes online. And one of the reasons that this is happening is that there's one thing at play here that trumps all of the other normal geopolitical calculations, like you know the Crimea and all this other stuff that's going on, that nobody, but nobody, wants a nuclear Iran. A lot of people in Iran don't want a nuclear Iran. And certainly nobody wants a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And, you know, you can actually just pause for a moment. This is, you know, something we can do with our subtle bodies and just feel in to the idea of an arms race in the Middle East, with Saudi Arabia and Egypt and, you know, all these countries developing nuclear weapons. You can just feel the, you know, fear, the contraction that it evokes in our chakric system. And there's an intelligence to this. Because when it comes to nuclear weapons, particularly, it's a pretty simple calculation. We don't want any more of the things, period, for anybody. We want less of them. And we certainly don't want nuclear weapons, which are the epitome of modern technological capacity for destruction. We don't want to put these, you know, leading edge modern weapons in the hands of people with a pre-modern mentality. And I talk about this a lot, that one of the biggest problems in the world is modern technology, modern weaponry, uh, uh, chemistry, uh, poisons, all, all of that sort of thing being put in the hands of people who are operating at a pre-modern stage of development where many of them deeply believe that the golden age of their people will be ushered in by some sort of an apocalypse. Or that creating a worldwide conflagration that incinerates the great Satan is a good thing that will please God. And a lot of uh, people in the Muslim world believe that. And let's note here, as I often do, that these kinds of beliefs are not particular to Islam. They're particular to pre-modern stages of development. And we can see some remnants of them in the culture of traditional Christianity in our country. I mean... The book of Revelations, the end of the New Testament, is, you know, one big florid apocalypse story that ushers in God's kingdom on earth and the New Jerusalem. And for people who believe that, 
For people who are at the traditional stage of development where they're living in the kingdom of God, they're not living in the modern world, they're living in an enchanted world. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, you can even feel sort of the spark of living in a world that is, you know, I'm a child of God and I'm here to do God's will. People who believe that and then have this apocalyptic sort of belief, which comes with the territory, they have mixed feelings about the end of the world and are probably a little more keen on, you know, giving it a go. So it's really something that we have to be aware of. And so what we're dealing with, um, and I think what Integral helps us see is that even if we just, you know, use the example of the United States and Iran here, you know, the two, you know, big players in, the, in these negotiations, there's a modern America and there's a traditional America. And there's a modern Iran and there's a traditional Iran. And all of these are negotiating with each other in a very interesting way. And in America, the modern people are pretty much feeling that Obama's on the right track. In fact, I saw statistics that surprised me uh, that I forget which poll it was. It was one of the big ones, ABC or NBC or Wall Street or something, where it was 65 plus percent of the people want the deal to go through as it is now laid out. And at the same time, the same percentage, 65 plus percent of the people think Iran will cheat. Uh, but they still want to do the deal. And I would count myself in that camp. I think we should do the deal. And I think Iran will cheat. And I think actually the United States will cheat too. Uh, but that this is something resembling the best deal we can get. I mean, if we do the deal, and I'm guessing it'll go through. Will a couple years down the road, will anybody be shocked to find that Iran had a, some secret stuff going on? Or that they have done military research in the past, which they deny but refuse to confirm in these negotiations? I mean, they claim they haven't. They claim, you know, the, as the Non-Proliferation Treaty says, every country that signs on, and that's every country except these four outliers, can have a nuclear program to develop nuclear power, just not nu nuclear weapons. So, you know, they're what their claim is, is that that's what they're doing. And on the other hand, would anybody be surprised if some of their scientists get assassinated by the, you know, uh, either Israelis or, or maybe even uh, the U.S.? Or if they got some bad aluminum tubes or a computer virus that blew up their centrifuges, which we've done. So these things, you know, cheating will go on. This is part of the deal. It, from, from an integral perspective, we're down at that red strata, that red strata, which is just sheer power politics. What can I get away with? At red, cheating is called doing business. <laughs> it's what you do. You get the best deal you can and you lie and you cheat and you, you know, deflect and you do whatever you can. And, and amber moving up to traditionalism and modernity, doesn't repeal this. That's still online. And so it really calls forth this new understanding of what it is to trust in this kind of an, an arrangement. 
And I always go back to good old Dr. Phil. He's doing this television show where he's um, basically counseling these people who are in all sorts of personal troubles with their marriage and their children and stuff. And, you know, everybody talks about how I can't trust them and I can't trust her and blah, blah, blah. And, and his thing is that you don't trust people in the way that you thought you had to. In other words, you don't trust people to do what they say they're going to do. You trust that people are going to be who they are and they are going to act accordingly. That's how you trust people. And most important, you trust that you can handle it no matter what they do. Okay, so you don't trust people to do what they say. You trust them to be who they are and that you can handle it no matter what they do. When uh, Dr. Phil really transmits that and it lands with people, it's amazing. It's a relief. And that's basically the container in which these negotiations are going on. I mean, we have these snapback conditions so that if we catch cheating, the sanctions go back on. We have inspections. We challenge. They object. It's a rolling mess for the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, however long the treaty lasts. And people on all sides at all times are raising alarms and, you know, we just deal with a mess. And this is, uh, this is another place where I think some spiritual practice comes in handy. Uh, I always love uh, Chokum Trumpa's definition. He's the guy who started Naropa in Shambhala. He's the Tibetan Buddhist teacher who came to America, came actually to Boulder, and uh, started a very vibrant Buddhist community. He's a famous transmitter of the Dharma to the West. And he talked about the Buddhist doctrine of suffering, that life is dukkha, that life is suffering. And he says, the suffering is not really the best terminology or the best, best translation for dukkha. He says, a better translation of the word is that life is just filled with unsatisfactoriness. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a mouthful, but I, I always liked that idea that nothing's ever quite right. You know, we never really feel completely safe or completely satisfied. And this is the nature of things. And the realization of that, the capital R realization of that, is a huge relief. Because you realize that you don't, you're not as responsible as you thought. You're not as big a fuck up as you thought. Neither are they. And that everybody's doing their thing. They're being human, just like we're supposed to do at various stages of development, doing their human thing, doing their traditionalist thing, doing their modernist thing, doing their postmodernist thing. And that we're all in this sort of bigger trajectory of the procreant, erotic development of consciousness, culture, and the world as we know it. So this is what we're, I think, called to uh, as modernist, postmodern, integral uh, Americans, uh, Westerners, as, as we do this deal. But, you know, we're not 100% in charge. There's, it's a democratic system. And there's another piece of America that's at the party, too, and that's what we'll call traditional America. And these are the people, these are the conservatives. 
basically. And they have, in many ways, a pre-modern... These are the people who are living in the world of... It's ethnocentric, religious, in the case of America, mostly Christian, also Jewish. And for the most conservative of these people, particularly what I would say this hardcore neoconservative warrior stage, or even pre-traditional in the sense that a lot of them are warrior red, is they really just don't get why we're even talking to these people. You know, they're dangerous. They're the other side. They're the other. This is the stage of development that's psychological organization requires that we feel that we're on the right side of things and that we are in a cosmic struggle with those who are on the wrong side of the things. Uh, not only other people, but powers uh, and even transcendent powers so that we have God on our side and the devil on the other side. And they see us that we have Iran on the ropes here. Their economy is in the dumps. There's a lot of them who want to join the modern world. And, and yet they're funding, they're not only doing this nuclear program, you know, they're going to make a nuclear bomb, these people. And not only that, they're funding Islamicist groups all over the world, uh, particularly in the Middle East. They're causing problems. They're working it against American interests. It's a little bit, I, I, I try to think of an image that helps modern people understand this mentality. And I think, you know, I talk about how traditionalists really do their life is animated by fighting the enemy, by fighting the capital E enemy, the devil. But for modernists, it might be something akin to, say you have cancer. You're fighting cancer. Do you want to give an inch when you're fighting cancer? Aren't you happy when you have your cancer on the ropes? You don't go to your doctor and say, do you think we're being a little harsh? Well, how bad will it hurt them? those poor cancer cells. No, it's like, get rid of them and wipe them out as cleanly and quickly as you can. And so we have our first announced presidential candidate on the Republican side here in America, Ted Cruz. And his memorable line on foreign policy is, he said, quote, they want to go back and reject modernity. He's right, they do. Well, he says, I think we should help them. We ought to bomb them back to the Stone Age. And let's not forget that that, you know, I laugh because from a modern and postmodern perspective, it's ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous from that stage of the game. And it wasn't so long ago that, you know, this wasn't just a philosophical, uh, you know, thought experiment. If you look at how all of the countries acted who were engaged in World War II. This is 70 years ago. We bombed people back to the Stone Age. Uh, well, we dropped two atomic bombs. We just, you know, pause and ponder that. Not one, two. Uh, we firebombed Dresden, Berlin, Tokyo with, you know, hundreds of bombs designed to set these cities on fire and, and burn everybody. And they did, you know, men, women, children, civilians. And so this, you know, at that stage of the game, we were at a traditionalist center of gravity, of mentality, with a lot of modernism. This was the 40s. It wasn't that long ago. 
And yet, in the face of an existential threat, that's what people at that stage of the game are absolutely willing to do. And our behavior in World War II is proof of it. And so for folks like this, Obama, you know, he's doing this deal. He's talking to these people. He's considering what they need. You know, he's considering their side. He's trying to make it work. He's negotiating with Iran, uh, you know, in Switzerland. And at the same time, we're fighting Iran in Yemen. And then we're allied with Iran in Iraq as we're fighting ISIS. And it's just too confusing. They're be flummoxed by this foreign policy, which I think is forward thinking. But as we often point out in terms of how the evolution of culture and consciousness works, what is coming new online doesn't look to the previous stage like progress. It looks like regress. And so to traditionalists, to see somebody who's playing both sides and working with Iran and against Iran just feels like befuddlement. It feels feckless. It feels like Neville Chamberlain, you know, which is the poster boy for appeasement. It literally makes traditionalists feel unsafe. I mean, they want us to see and call out the enemy in everything. This is what they think is progress. And I even noticed whatever it was, a week or so ago, or maybe two weeks ago, when that German pilot crashed that airliner. And this was maybe the day or two after. And I was watching Megan Fox. I'm sorry, what's her name? Megan Kelly on Fox. And she's, you know, the big news star of Fox. And she's not always completely 100% reliably conservative, but she basically comes from this perspective. And on her show, she had four experts all lined up in their little screens. And the question was, why are they ruling out that this plane crash was terrorism? Because the first German response was that it was not terrorism. And every one of those guests was, yes, what are they hiding here? And it was like remarkable to me that they, I realized they actually wanted it to be terrorism. And I don't mean that in a way that they're, irresponsible or they're bad people. They wanted it to be terrorism because they want America to see what we're up against. And they don't want that to be hidden. It drives them crazy that Obama talks about the criminal murderous terrorists instead of the Islamic terrorists, because that is how they see it. And they don't feel safe with a leader who doesn't see it that way. So that's what we're working. That's, you know, those are the people, Tom Cotton, uh, a lot of the Republicans in the Senate, certainly Ted Cruz, uh, all the Republican candidates, of course, are against this deal and how Obama got outplayed and blah, blah, blah. And this is where they're coming from. I mean, a lot of it's politics and a lot of it's sort of fake outrage, but a lot of it, it comes from the basic, uh, you know, their basic worldview and belief system. Okay, so that's modern, postmodern, integral, if you will, America as opposed to the traditional America. And then we have in Iran, the same thing. Of course, different percentages, I would argue. Um, we have traditional Iran, I would say, our hardcore warrior traditionalists here, maybe 20%. In Iran, my guess is it would be more like 50%. And that is where the sort of danger comes in because they too feel besieged. Again, feeling besieged 
is not a bug of the system <laughs> at traditional. It's a feature of the system. It's how people organize their minds. And for Iranian Muslims, they're, of course, Shiite. And uh, Shia is only 15% of Islam in, in a 85% Sunni world. And they're still in that um, sectarian polarity that Christianity was in in the 16th century uh, with Protestantism and Catholicism. And they're still working that out. And this is, of course, the Middle East is, is quite, I think, apparently in the process of sorting itself out between the Shia and the Sunni. And for Iranians who have been you know, screwed around by the United States for a long time. I mean, they they voted in a, a democracy in the 50s that we overthrew in the favor of the Shah. So they have a big grudge against us, the, the traditionalists do. The modernists, not so much, but we'll get to that in a second. But uh, a nuclear bomb for these folks is the big trump card. First of all, it's the only way of being 100% safe from the U.S. invading them. I mean, they saw what happened to Iraq. They saw what happened to Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, they also saw what hasn't happened to Kim Jong-il in North Korea. You know, it's hands off North Korea because they got a bomb. So you can see the intelligence between, be, you know, behind wanting to get this. So will they do it? And what's our posture with you know, as I'm saying, maybe 50% of the uh, of the population feels this way. And by the way, if there's any Iranians listening and you have some insight into this, I'd love to hear from you. I had a couple interviews with Iranians in the past, and it's very, you can still look them up. Uh, and it's very, very interesting to hear uh, from the uh, Iranian point of view here. But what I would say is that the uh, doctrine of what we call the MAD doctrine, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, seems to work uh, at every stage from traditional on up. It worked with the United States and Russia and China for many years when, you know, these were not terribly enlightened people. But there's something that is, you know, very powerful about knowing that if you use this weapon, it's going to be used against you. And that's a very, very credible threat that has so far with Pakistan, with, you know, North Korea, India, Israel, you know, the five nuclear power, no nuclear powers, it's kept everybody in check. And I worry that, well, two things. One is that in some crisis situation where people tend to, if they feel there's an existential threat, they tend to ratchet down to the previous level, that traditionalist will ratchet down to red. And red doesn't care about being incinerated. Red kind of likes it, actually. The warrior credo is today is a good day to die. Because, you know, for them, dying's, you know, no big deal. You're actually moving on to paradise. So bring it on. Uh, and th th I think one of the sort of rules of thumb that I use when I calibrate where people are is when people live in palaces, they tend to like their lives. They tend to be, you know, more traditionalist. They're, they're, they're educating their kids in, you know, 
Switzerland and, you know, they're driving their cars and they're living their lives. These are people for whom mutually assured destruction probably works. The ones in the caves are the ones I worry about. And while I don't think that Iran would ever, you know, use the bomb as, you know, a matter of official policy, military policy, I worry about any more bombs just being in the system, being on the planet, because, you know, these are human systems that guard these things, and they are therefore uh, prone with human failings, and I worry that they're going to get in the hands of people who would be delighted to use them, and maybe even given to those people by people who wouldn't use them themselves. So that's what we have to sort of worry about as we see this, you know, what essentially looks like it will be for the next, I don't know, decade plus, a mini Cold War between the Shiites, that's Iran and uh, a good part of Iraq, and the Sunnis, which is, you know, kind of most everybody else in the Middle East. And can they have a stable polarity uh, that doesn't go violent? And that's one of the things that the modern world, you know, that they're, they're doing this in the context of the modern world. Hopefully it won't take them, you know, the equivalent of the 16th century of 100 years war to figure it out because, you know, the rest of the world's already cut the grooves for progress into a more modern and, uh, you know, pacified world. Modern world becomes pacified. So that gets, gets me to the um, next stage or the next group I wanted to talk about, and that's the modern Iranians. Just talked about the traditional Iranians. And there are a lot of modern Iranians. They're the, as I said, maybe 50%, maybe more. They're in the cities. Uh, they're the young people, particularly 65% of the people in Iran are under 30. That's a hugely important fact. These people are, you know, they're over it. They're over these struggles, struggles a lot of them. Uh, they have internet, they know Western culture. We work with people, particularly the people in the spiral dynamics community, Elza Malouf, Saeed Dalabani, Don Beck himself, who work with the younger generation in the Muslim world. They find that they are as lit up by the prospect of joining modernity as any young person you would find here, maybe more so in a way because it's been kept from them. And uh, they're educated, they're ready to roll. And one of the things that comes online as people move from the traditional to the modern stage of development is, and Ken points this out, Ken Wilbur points this out, that we have a differentiation of what we call the value spheres. That in traditional society, the public and private sphere are fused. That is, you don't really have privacy. The power is invested in the state which is fused with the church. It's a theocracy, which is what we have officially in Iran. And that's dangerous in a way that modernity isn't, because when people get to modernity, there's this new realization. It's, it's one of the great achievements of modernity is that people realize that there is actually not just the public sphere that we're living in, but there's a private sphere. And that sovereignty actually resides in me, 
as an individual human being, and I have dignity in and of myself. It's not vested in me by the priests or the, the governor uh, that I actually have a sovereignty that trumps theirs. And that is a huge um, change in consciousness. And at that point, bowing down to the secret police or the religious police just becomes unbearable and untenable. And so we've seen uh, a bit of a modern uprising in Iran after the Arab Spring that was suppressed by the authorities. The authorities, the government, of course, is run by the, at least particularly the, the religious component of, of the government is are traditionalists and pre-traditionalists. But the new president, Rouhani, a, certainly has some modern uh, uh, qualities. And he wants, I, I thought one of the things that was really interesting was there was, you know, if you remember the Pharrell Williams song, happiness is the truth. You know, there's a big hit that was a big hit maybe about a year or so ago, or not even. And one of the sort of memes that happened that went out worldwide uh, over the internet was people would make these videos of themselves dancing to this song, and they would post them on YouTube. And there were some young people who made a video, quite a lovely, sweet video, of them dancing around to this song on top of the uh, uh, rooftops in Tehran. And they were turned over to the religious police and they were arrested because they were un-Islamic and they didn't have their clothes weren't quite right. And it just didn't seem like it was Islamic enough that they were, you know, that this was something that was threatening the religious society. And you can sort of, you know, you can get that. It's like how our grandparents were scandalized by our music. And yet the president came out and said that we hope that young people in Iran can be happy and we want them to show it and and we shouldn't get in the way. And they were released. And, you know, so, you know, we have this tension clearly that's going on within Iran. And so the question is, uh, if we stop Iran from getting a nu nuclear weapon, if that's what this uh, deal does, and apparently it does, uh, with, you know, unprecedented, uh, intrusive uh, inspections and so forth, then that's, I think, a good deal because we can trust, I don't know if we can trust 100%, but we can certainly see and, and hope for that in 10 years, there's a, a very significant change in Iran and in their inter internal politics. And, you know, the question is, as we re-knit them back into the world, and drop the sanctions, and they become more economically powerful, will the government do their anti-Western mischief, anti-Israeli, anti-supporting you know, you know, uh, supporting Hamas and so forth, uh, or will they become more and more integrated into the modern world and become responsible citizens of the modern world? And I'm betting on this, the latter, and I, uh, considering that the option... Uh, and I do think it's a pretty binary option between uh, this deal and, you know, some sort of military action, uh, then I'll take this deal any day and sort of count on emergence. And one of the things we see as countries become more and more modern 
is that it's harder and harder for the uh, theocracy or the traditionalist government and their police to keep the modernists in check. Because at some point, at some stage of the game, the police literally won't fire on their own people. And this is where nonviolent protest, and this is probably, this would be the stage that I would predict for modernists to take, or the, or the strategy for modernists to take in Iran. Um, nonviolent protest only works when the center of the gravity of the culture is, you know, traditionalist modernists. They have to be, have some good modern qualities for, the, for that to work. I mean, could you imagine a nonviolent protest in North Korea? They just get mowed down or carted away to some very bad place. Or same thing in Saddam Hussein's um, Iraq. It read mafia, warrior culture. Uh, nonviolent communication doesn't work. I, I hear my green friends talk about nonviolent, I'm sorry, nonviolent uh, protest doesn't work. Nonviolent communication has a better chance, but nonviolent protest doesn't work. And, you know, I hear you know, green seems to think of it as the solution to everything, and it's not. Uh, it only works when the society has developed a conscience. And that, um, I think, uh, with Iran, we can, I think, it's a good bet. And I love Obama when he was talking to Tom Friedman this week about the deal. He was saying that, you know, the United States has a $600 billion um, military budget. Uh, Iran has a $30 billion military budget with all of it. You know, with that kind of superiority, uh, we can afford to take some risks and try some experiments and see what works. And, of course, that drives the conservatives crazy, but he's right. And, you know, once again, I'm so happy that he is our president. Jeff. Yes. Despite the ban on social media networks in Iran, it didn't stop uh, thousands of people from posting online and tweeting about that Iran deal. And it was really neat to see, you know, people at parties, people at one in the morning driving through yeah. Tehran, honking their horns and uh, singing and, you know, people taking selfies with um, Obama on the television. Um, everybody <laughs> was glued to it because apparently uh, it's the first live speech by a U.S. president broadcast uh, on state TV for what's believed to be, you know, well, probably the first time since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. They published Obama's speech? Yes, they broadcast, or they, they broadcast it. it. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that the celebration in Iran was thrilling. Yeah. And, you know, you can just feel these people wanting to bring forth. I remember when I talked to Fazir, the, our Iranian friend, I guess last year, and he, he was talking about, you know, the character of the Iranian people. And, of course, here in the States, we see them as, you know, the enemy and uh, the, the Khomeini and the hostages and all of their troubles and the Revolutionary Guard. But he said, actually, in terms of even an Enneagram type, that Iranians are givers. They're soft. They're in a good way. They're romantic. They're meek and timid. That's just part of the quality of, of the personality of the culture. And very, very creative and very full of art and music and romance. And part of what 
is so cool about Iran becoming part of the modern world is that, you know, as the world continues to move forward, everybody has to sort of be online. That's that's part of the fun of it. It's just like with the Enneagram. You, you don't want to just hang out with your own type. You want all types. Every You know, we need all nine types to make a party. And so the idea of of Iranians, and I think these young people, they want to not just, let's just even call it Persianness. They want to bring their Persianness to the world and share it with us. And, and I want to see it. I want to know what that is. Uh, it's one of the oldest cultures in the world. It's not an artificial culture. They have a real sense of, uh, you know, their own borders, their own identity, and their own history. And I'm excited to have real, you know, modern, postmodern, integral Persianness be brought into the beautiful mosaic of an ever more good, true, and beautiful world. Yeah, that's right. All right, so I think we're good here for tonight. Any other um, comments, questions? Well, um, it's your birthday this week. <laughs> I'm going to be 61 yeah. on Thursday. And Thursday night, I'm celebrating my birthday by having a call, another call with you people. Uh, if you want to join us, it's for the Integral Living Room, which is the event that we do here in Boulder. We're doing uh, it in end of October, beginning of November. And I do it with uh, Diane Hamilton and Terry Patton. Ken Wilber joins us. We go to the Integral Center and... Um, and we have quite a community of people who are interested in that. So if you're interested in, we have a periodic call, like once a month every or six weeks uh, in preparation for the event in October. And so we have one of those this coming Thursday night, April 9th, my birthday. And um, so join us. And if they want to join us, what do they do, Brett? Just go to IntegralLivingRoom.com? Yeah, they can go to integralivingroom.com and go to the Conversations So Far page. Okay. And you can click a link there to sign up. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And those are still on the telephone. We still use the Maestro Those are still on the that. telephone, yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. But by the way, uh, yes. there's some people that have a message for you, Jeff. For oh, really? Birthday. Yeah. Oh, good, good Lord. Well, and that's I'm, good. I'm about to um, play them for you. Cool. You ready? Yeah. All right. Dear friend, this is Namali. I am so happy to be wishing you a very happy birthday today. I hope that you are reminded again and again today just how much you are loved and valued in this crazy world into which you try always, often, consistently, constantly to pour forth so much meaning and so much care. Hi Jeff, Zachary Sutter here. Just wanted to start by saying so glad you're back 
recording and um, doing these calls. They're just so wonderful and uh, just truly, deeply, profoundly appreciated. Deep love and appreciation from myself and from Jagna. Now, almost seven and a half years ago now that I first met you in the Integral community and saw the light pouring out of you and said, this is an interesting cat. I got to get to know him. And you've been so welcoming and so helpful uh, in my journey and the things that we've done together have meant a lot to me. Keep up the great work for everyone out here in the universe. Love and appreciation. Thank you so much. You're so important in my life. Even when you're dealing with heavy subjects, you still bring a certain sense of levity and breadth and uh, holding things compassionately. And I appreciate that. I just want you to know, brother, as an early birthday gift, that you are one of the most extraordinary, amazing men I have ever met in my life. I love your values, your heart, your commitment, your priorities. I cannot thank you enough for how much you enrich my life. Happy birthday, bro. Really glad the day you were born because you're a very important person in my life and I love you very much. Hey Jeff, this is Rich Townfold, just thanking you very much for your wonderful podcast that you've been doing. I think your podcasts are fantastic and really enjoy them each week. You do a great job. It's so helpful to have your input on the things that are happening day by day in our culture and it's just fabulous. So keep up the good work. Thank you, thank you. Corey, Angie, and Evelyn here. We just want to say happy birthday and we love you so much. We're so grateful for your kindness, your love, and your friendship, and I think I can speak for the entire Integral Movement when I say thank you for everything you've done to nurture and support this space over the years. Thanks a lot for all you do, Jeff. Listening to you is like being back in the discussion groups in college when there was a possibility to really let the imagination run. Hey, Jeff. My name's Eric in uh, Akron, Ohio. Carry on and uh, keep on the great postings, man. I love you. You are kicking it with the Daily Evolver, the Integral Living Room, and every other which way, and just being a heart brother in all respects. This is Terry Patton. I love you, man, and I'm so glad that we're doing this wonderful trip. It is long, it is strange, and it is just getting going. Jeff, you bring those theoretical constructs down. You make them quite accessible and contemporary, which is really, really important. And you uh, weave them into the daily <laughs> evolving fabric of our lives. I just really appreciate what you're offering to the community. You've inspired me and uh, you're appreciated. So thank you, sir, for your gift. Hi, Jeff. This is Benza here. Just wanted to congratulate and sending my love and hug. Hi, Jeff. Here's Johan. Thank you. I love you. Jeff Salzman, you are a beautiful man. This is Ian Savage, uh, leaving you a message from Seattle, Washington. And I just want to let you know that <laughs> I love you. Not only just for the work that you're doing, but just on the personal impact that your podcast has done for me personally. As Victor Frankl said, what is to give light must endure burning. So it takes a pretty big soul to take this much love. So eat it up, brother man. Love you a lot. You know what, Jeff, when I think of you, I always think of your loving heart. You have the kindest, most loving presence, always. Hi, Jeff. Heidi here from Italy. Thank you for your great work. Thank you so much for showing me a way of viewing the world that is comprehensive, helpful, and loving. 
Here's to you, Jeff. In giving thanks, Gwen. Hello, Jeff Salzman. This is Vic, the host of Integral Radio. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I heard it was your birthday, so I thought I would drop a line, send you my best wishes, and sing you a little song. Here we go. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. You look like a monkey, and share a cosmic address with one too. Ha 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 ha. I'm just kidding. Love you Jeff. Happy birthday, from all of us at Integral Radio. Hi Jeff, it's Ken Wilbur, saying hello, and wishing you the very, very best on this birthday. You are one of my totally favorite people in the whole wide world. I love you to pieces. I'm so delighted to have you in my life, and so delighted for what you continue to do for the integral vision. It is wonderful. You are wonderful. I just can't tell you how wonderful you are. Seriously, it's just awesome. So I'm wishing you the very, very best. Have a wonderful time, and I can't wait till I see you. Happy birthday, my sweet Jeff. I hope this is your best year yet. God, well, thank you so much, everybody. And um, I'm, I have my cheeks are hurting here from smiling. Um, and um, it's deeply encouraging to get the feedback and love and so much fun to do this. Thank you for joining me. And um, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Integral Radio for Daily Evolver Live. Jeff Salzman signing off.